Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. In the name of the Spirit, of the Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, one Lord. Amen. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. The place of the Virgin Mary in uh, Coptic Orthodox Church uh, is beyond questioning. We... We venerate her, we love her, we honor her. So when we refer to the Theotokos as the ever-Virgin, or when we call her the Virgin Mary, it's not that we're paying her a compliment. Because we, have, we already commemorate her so much and venerate her so much in the church. When you look at the hymns of the church, you see that there are so many titles that we give to her to try to unravel some of the mystery and understand and approach some of the mystery of what she has done. So in the Tazbaha, for example, in the Theotokeya, we call her the second heaven, the golden lampstand, the mother of the true light, the golden censer, the burning bush, Aaron's rod, Jacob's ladder, the pot of men, and on and on and on. So when we call her the Virgin Mary, there is something deeper happening here, and this is what I'd like to, to speak with you about this morning. In iconography of the Coptic Orthodox Church, in Orthodox iconography in general, the Theotokos is always with Christ. St. Mary is always with Christ. She's never on her own. She's always carrying our Lord. And that's how we see her in Orthodox icons, no matter where you go. She's, always, she's never alone. She's always carrying our Lord. So she's the Theotokos. And like I just said, in hymnography, this is how she's commemorated and venerated. And also... In our practices, you know how many feasts we have of the Virgin Mary every year? How many feasts do we celebrate? A lot. So I'm going to let you count. We just said something brief this morning in the Synexarium. We celebrated today is the 21st of the Coptic month. So we have a monthly feast. In addition to all the annual feasts, we celebrate the Annunciation of her birth. We celebrate her birth. We celebrate her entry into the temple. We celebrate her in the Annunciation of our Lord, in the birth of our Lord. We celebrate her into the entry into Egypt. There are so many feasts where the Virgin Mary is celebrated and venerated. So when we call her Virgin, it is not a compliment. This is something deeper. This is something essential to our faith as Orthodox Christians. Some people today come and say, uh, that the virginity of St. Mary is something new. It's a new idea. This wasn't something thought of or discussed or uh, talked about in the early church. And a matter of as a matter of fact, it's just something about language. In the Old Testament, in, in the Biblical Hebrew, there are the two words, Batula and Alma. And Alma means young maiden, young girl. And Betula means virgin, and basically there was a confusion when they were translating, and this is where this whole idea came from, and it's essentially coming around the time of the Reformation, 
where the Catholics and the Protestants are fighting with one another. Uh, the, the, the reformers see that the Roman Catholics are venerating the Theotokos, so they're saying, no, she's not a virgin, she's not to be venerated, she's done her part, she's done her, fulfilled her role, and she's like everyone else, she's not to be venerated any more than uh, anyone else. And when we look deeper, the verse that I just read to you at the beginning was from Ezekiel 44. This was a prophecy, not just about the coming of Christ, but in the manner of his coming. And the prophecy itself is not just the language of the prophecy, but the manner of the prophecy itself, talking about the virginity of the Theotokos. And same thing with Isaiah chapter 7, when he talks about the Theotokos, when he talks about the incarnation. And he says, a sign will be given to you that a virgin will bear a son. Right? It's not just a, a matter of saying that a girl is going to bear a son. Well, a girl bears a son. A married woman bears a son every day. It's not a sign. How is this a sign? The sign is, is that it, it, it will be a virgin. So it wasn't just a matter of language, and it's not just something recent, but in fact, it's something that goes way back. And one of our patriarchs took it even apparently one step further, St. Peter of Alexandria. We all know him as St. Peter, the Seal of the Martyrs. In the fourth century, he called her the ever-version. She was called this before in different ways, but he was the first one to use this expression, e parthenos. And we, see, we hear this in the hymns of the church. There's actually a hymn called e parthenos, right? St. Athanasius followed him and did him as the, followed him in calling the Theotokos e parthenos. And in fact, this, this understanding of the Theotokos and the role of the is very old, very ancient. So today when we read in the gospel, the reference to the Lord's brothers, we're wondering what does that mean exactly? And is this something, is this something that Christians just noticed today or is this something that was spoken of earlier? And in fact, this was something so widespread in early Christianity that when people wanted to attack Christianity, they, they attacked this very notion saying that this is what Christians believe. And you know what Christians responded saying? They never said, no, 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 this is not something we all believe. This is something maybe one or two groups believe, but generally this is not something we talk about or understand. This is something that they defended. And this is something that people who wanted to attack Christians used because this was something so held among all of Christians. So in Origen's writings, and his writings against someone called Celsus in the, in the middle of the second century. Celsus is, is non-Christian, and he's pagan, in fact, and he's attacking Christianity, attacking Christians by saying that they believe in the virginal birth. He's speaking of Christ, saying he accuses uh, Christ of, uh, this is Origen talking about Celsus, saying he accuses Christ of having invented his birth from a virgin, upbraids him of being born in a certain Jewish village of a poor woman of the country. You can all go and read this in Origen's writings. Born in a certain Jewish village of a poor woman of the country who gained her subsistence, her living, by spinning yarn, and who was turned out of doors by her husband, a carpenter by trade, because she was convicted of adultery, that after being driven away by her husband and wandering about for a time, she disgracefully gave birth to Jesus. And he goes on and on and on about this. Now, Origen doesn't say, you know, what you're saying doesn't really make sense with what we believe. In fact, he goes on it and says, this is exactly what we believe, the virginal birth, but not 
the way you're describing it. Not saying that she was, this was something that was invented. This is, in fact, the mystery of the Incarnation. We're going to get to this in a second. Later on in the same century, St. Irenaeus talks about the virginal birth in a very wonderful and mysterious way. And he connects that with the creation of Adam and Eve. He said, just as Adam was created from virgin ground because the earth, because God has not caused it to rain yet. So the earth was still virgin and he created Adam. So the new Adam was to be born in the same way, from a virgin. Being born from the, from the virgin by the will and wisdom of God, that he might also demonstrate the likeness of the embodiment, or in sarcosis, to Adam. And might become the man written in the beginning according to the image and likeness of God. So this is what, how St. Irenaeus describes it. He says, just as through a disobedient virgin, man was struck and falling, died, so also by means of a virgin who obeyed the word of God, man was made alive once more. For the Lord came to seek back the lost sheep. And since it was man who was lost, he became a man. Born from her, who was of the race of Adam, he maintained the likeness of the formation. For it was necessary for Adam to be taken back into Christ, to be remade, to be recreated, to be made alive once more. And Eve in Mary, that a virgin become an advocate for a virgin. And this is how he connected it. It had to be this way. A virgin, St. Mary, had to be the advocate for Eve. And might undo and destroy the virginal disobedience by virginal obedience. So as we see, in fact, from the very beginning, the understanding that St. Mary was a virgin was very much prominent in the church, widespread, everywhere. So much so that when others, like I said, wanted to attack Christianity, this was something they could point to because everyone believed it. This isn't just something that is about translation and language and something that came very recently. An origin, in fact, tells a story to affirm the virginity of the Mary that there was a certain tradition in the temple where there was an area for the virgins to stand and to pray. And St. Mary, after the incarnation, came and stood in the same uh, area as the virgins. And some people came and said to her, we know your son. You're no longer allowed to stand here. This is for virgins only. And Zachariah came, as Origen tells us, Zachariah came and defended her virginity and said she is worthy of the place of virgins, for she is still a virgin. So in Matthew chapter 1 and Mark chapter 3, when we read today about the brothers of the Lord, by the way, Christians from the very beginning had the Bible, read the Bible, understood the Bible, and they, they read this verse. So when someone today comes and says, you know, your Bible, I don't know if you noticed, but it mentions that Jesus Christ had brothers. And then all of a sudden, like we say, you know what, that makes sense. Like the Bible does say that. How do I answer this? Where do I go? So as Orthodox Christians, we have 2,000 years of tradition. We don't just go and say, this is the first time someone read this. Let me try and make sense of it and see what, um, what I can do with it. I always go back and see what other Christians have said. Because what other Christians have said, Christians who came before us, they said it before us, long before us, and their words have been tested by time. They stood the test of time. 
So when someone like Saint Athanasius says something, Saint Irenaeus says something, Saint Cyril of Alexandria says something, these are not just words of people who lived long ago. These were these are words. First of all, they're precious to us because we are Coptic Orthodox. We're from the same church. Saint Athanasius was Alexandrian. Saint Cyril was Alexandrian. Saint Irenaeus wasn't, but we still love him. But the point is that their words stood the test of time. All this time has passed by. Any objections, any issues with their words would have come forward and been made clear. But because there's something standing the test of time, this means something is truly precious. So this idea of, or the objections to the virginity based on the, this verse of uh, Christ having brothers, Matthew chapter 1 and Mark chapter 3, St. Jerome, in fact, took some time to address this. In the fourth century, he went to Bethlehem and spent a few months in a cave translating the Old Testament into Latin. It's a, it's a translation called the Vulgate. And in his work, he focused on this one point, among other things, and he says, it is the custom, first of all, of scriptures <clears throat> to designate or to give the title of firstborn, not to one who necessarily will have people or siblings who will follow him, but one who is born first. So he says it this way. He says, every only child is a firstborn, but not every firstborn is an only child. Let me say that again. Every only child is a firstborn, but not every firstborn is an only child. And Christ being called the firstborn over all creation has a deeper meaning, not just meaning to his immediate family that he's going to have, you know, siblings, brothers, sisters. That's not what the meaning is here. Firstborn over all creation. He is the source of all creation. He sustains, supports, and he is the essence of all creation. Likewise, the expression, St. Jerome says, he did not know her until he brought forth her firstborn son, also implies no necessity that he's going to know her afterwards, know her in the, in the biblical sense. So, for example, he gives the example of the daughter of Saul, Michal, and he says that No son was born to me called the daughter of Saul until her dying day. She did not have children. So when the, when the Bible says it this way, it doesn't mean that she had children after she died. So in reference to the brothers of the Lord, and the verse that we read today, Mark chapter uh, 3 and uh, Matthew chapter 1, this uh, uh, the, the brothers of the Lord... Uh, was understood in a couple of different ways. Saint Jerome replied to it, and uh, we're going to see what his reply is. But other people replied to it as well, and we'll give you some of those replies. Origen said, "No one whose opinion on the Theotokos is sound would claim that she had any child other than Jesus." He flat out said it. He didn't explain why. Didn't explain the verse. He just said, "No one of sound mind would say that she had any other children." So there was the opinion of a bishop from Cyprus in the 4th century, Epiphanius of Salamis. This is what he said. So in defending the virginity of the Theotokos, he said these sons could refer to the um, uh, children of Joseph the carpenter from a previous marriage. This wasn't, this wasn't like a dominant opinion or something that was accepted widely because there were some issues with this idea. First, 
If these brothers of Christ were in fact older, born of an earlier marriage, why then not mention them in the infancy narratives? So in the second century, a book was circulating called the Proto-Evangelion of James. This is not a canonical book. This is not part of the New Testament. But even in, in, uh, in uh, pop culture at the time, the, the thought about the Theotokos was that she's a virgin. When stories are being told, even if these stories are not canonical, the story still maintained that she was a virgin. And the Proto-Evangelion of James, we take some elements uh, of it actually in some of the hymns that we see, some of the iconography. And in none of the stories is there ever a mention of Christ having older brothers. In Luke chapter 2, when Christ is at the temple at the age of 12, the holy family is three people. Christ, St. Mary, and St. Joseph. There's no one else in the family. St. Matthew also refers to Christ as being the heir of Joseph, the son of David. And if uh, uh, St. Joseph had other sons, older sons, they would have been heir men, not Christ. And if Jesus had brothers, he would have left his mother to them rather than leaving them with St. John on the cross. But most people believed what St. Jerome uh, taught. Basically, there are four ways Scripture talks about brothers. Blood brotherhood, like if you're actual brother, sibling uh, by blood. Uh, common nationality, someone from the same country, from your same village even, would be called a brother. A close relative and a friend, a close friend. So in the case of Matthew chapter 1 and the verse we read today, St. Jerome says this is in reference to a close relative. So in the case of the Lord's brother, the third meaning applies. Abraham, he says, calls Lot, his nephew, um, brother. And Laban uses the same term for his son-in-law. And it's well known that at that time, cousins were also called brothers. And you go to Upper Egypt today, everybody's a brother. In Aramaic language, all of these types of relations are called brothers. But saying that St. Jerome says that these are close relatives, most likely the sons of St. Mary of Clopas, the wife of Alphaeus, the sister of the Virgin Mary. Now, all of this, sometimes we say, you know what, this is too complicated, too historical. What does it have to do with what we believe here today? And you hear that thought or the idea that, let's just focus on the essence, what's important. This is probably, if it doesn't have direct implication on our salvation, what's the point? Like, you know, St. Mary being virgin, not being virgin, what's, what's the relevance with this and our salvation? And the point is that this is essentially directly connected to how we believe or how we understand who Christ is, how He saves us, and how we are being saved. Or eschatologically, we look forward to the kingdom of God, what that will be like. Christ Himself, His union, would not be a hypostatic union, would not be a union with our nature. We would not all be impacted by this union had St. Mary not been a virgin. And this has not been a virginal birth, a miraculous birth, the incarnation being something unique. If this is not something unique, then the union between Christ, between the divinity and humanity, would be something special to this one person and would not have any impact on the rest of us. 
And as such, what does that mean in terms of salvation? That means that only this person is saved. We're not all uh, impacted by this if St. Mary is not a virgin. If St. Mary is not a virgin, it would also mean that God is picking and choosing who to save by uniting with them, not uniting with all of us, opening the door for all of us, reaching out to all of us, each and every last one of us. So this understanding of who the theologian is not just new, something invented recently, something a matter of confusion of words or languages. This is something essential to how we believe and how we see Christ and how we see came, Christ himself came and was born of a virgin in order to save all of us, not just to save the son of Mary, in order to save all of us. In order for this to happen, the birth had to be a virginal birth. In order for this to happen, and in order for us to understand and perceive all of the prophets of the Old Testament who would speak about this, would speak about it in this very special, clear, unambiguous way, that the birth had to happen from a virgin. This was the sign that everyone was waiting for. And that's why when it happened, it was something undeniable. That's why when it happened, it wasn't just something that uh, Christians could say, this is probably something too difficult to understand. Let's just brush this aside because it doesn't have any impact. In fact, they were willing to defend this very doctrine that received its uh, perfection of expression, as they say, of Ephesus. In the Council of Ephesus, all of the church came together and said, this is how we see the Theotokos, Eparthenos, the ever-version. And they put together the introduction to the creed, saying that this is the mother of God, and this is how we understand the mother of God. Without this, without this, the rest of our faith begins to crumble, and all the pieces begin to fall apart. So today, when we, when we read verses like this, we're going to just say, you know what? What am I supposed to do with this verse? I always go and, and, and go back to the other Christians who came before me and see how they understood and what they left me and the treasure that the Orthodox Church is offering me. To Him be the glory forever and ever. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.